So, tonight we are continuing the next part of our story. We are literally entering a new chapter, both because we've got to chapter four, but also because we're continuing the story of what happened after Adam and Eve left the garden, after they were banished, after they were judged by God for their actions. And I love the fact that, um, and I was looking in David Atkinson's um, commentary uh, entitled The Message of Genesis 1 to 11. He starts this, this chapter in his commentary with these words. Genesis 4 opens with a new life. Even as the door is shut on the way back to the garden and the cherubim are placed to guard the way to the tree of life, our author is looking forwards. God allows life to continue even in the fallen world outside the garden. And I love that sense that you would almost think that after they'd been banished from the garden, that was it. But no, we have hope because even though they'd made a mess of it, as we've looked at recently, God is still there. Even when we don't always get it right or we even turn away from him, God doesn't stop loving us. He hasn't and he hasn't, he hadn't and he hasn't left us. He hadn't and hasn't rejected us. And the very fact that they are moving forwards and we have new life in the form of Cain and of Abel, we realize that life and hope will continue because God continues to be in the story and I want to say to us tonight however you are feeling tonight there is always life and there is always hope because God is always with us and we were reminded of that weren't we this morning in the passage that Mike used I will never leave you or forsake you with the words from Deuteronomy 31 and I think particularly if we're looking at the whole subject of good and evil in the next however many minutes it takes us, we need to remember that, don't we? We need to remember that God is always with us. We need to remember that there is always hope, particularly if we look in a world that doesn't feel very hopeful. But God is always there. I'm sure that when you've just heard those few verses from uh, Genesis 4, you kind of thought to yourself, as I did, oh, well, we, we know the story of Cain and Abel. We've heard sermons on it. We've had the subject on it. Maybe we've done Bible passages on it. And it's very familiar to us. And actually, I would agree when I looked at it. I thought, oh, yeah, I know this story. But actually, the more I read and the more I looked and the more I kind of felt where God was leading me today, I was really surprised it's often the way, isn't it, when you go back to a Bible passage and all of a sudden verses that you've read however many times suddenly leap off, their, leap off the page and kind of slap you around the face several times. Well, that's kind of what happened to me when I was looking at this passage afresh because I realized, as we will hopefully see tonight, that right in this chapter, we're already looking to Christ. There are already the themes of sacrifice and atonement in this passage, which, of course, is what Christ came to do. He came as our sacrifice he came as our atonement to be back in relationship with God. And we're only in chapter 4. And alongside the kind of the whole wonderful celebration of marriage and relationships, 
and being in society. The kind of the good things that we can read about in that passage. We have, on the other hand, sin and murder and vengeance and the corruption of marriage and envy. All of those are there in this chapter, all as a result of what has gone before that we have been reading about with Adam and Eve. And as I continue to read and as I looked further at what Atkinson said in his commentary and also as I looked at how our Christian history has been over many years, we realize that perhaps good and evil is in evidence in all of us. In fact, that is what Atkinson is saying. There are elements of Cain and Abel in us all, and I'm not sure how comfortable we feel about that. In fact, the American Franciscan priest, Richard Rohr, who some of you may have been aware of, he uses his Christian perspective of something called the Enneagram, which is a personality system which looks at kind of nine different types of personality and why they act in the way that they do, why they behave and make the choices that they do, all comes back to this passage here in Genesis 4, that Cain and Abel are part of every human being. Many of us will be much more familiar with Myers-Briggs or color profiling or even disc profiling. But Richard Rohr, a Catholic Franciscan priest from America, he really has taken it and developed it in a way that he's basically saying the true self and the false self. By understanding better who we are and what decisions motivates why we make the decisions we do are the things that determine the way our life will go. In other words, we all have capacity to do good as well as evil. It just depends on the internal dynamics that are going on. It depends on how closely we're following Christ or not as to the way that we behave. Or in other words, all our choices bring consequences, some for the good and some not. I don't know how comfortable you are with that kind of sense of within us, we have those elements of Cain and Abel. We could go one way or the other. But actually, if we look back through history, all the way back to this moment in time, we realize that this whole subject of good and evil has been around ever since time began, in effect. If you're of a Western theological viewpoint or if you're from an Eastern Orthodox kind of viewpoint, the subject of good and evil has been discussed again and again and again. Theologians have debated this over the centuries. And I'm sure some of us will have been, will be familiar with the doctrine of original sin, something that has been um, bounced around as a, as a phrase for many, many centuries. That sense that a baby is born even sinful as a result of Adam and Eve's actions in the garden. Sometimes we don't like to dwell on it, do we? Sometimes we don't want to spend time thinking about those good and not so good parts of us. We just try to do our best. That's perhaps where we're focusing. But actually, if we look at chapter 7 of Romans, we can see that Paul himself is kind of talking about this there. When he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. 
As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but sin living in me. For I, have, for I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is in my sinful nature, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin living in me that does it. Are you exhausted and confused at the end of that? That's kind of how I felt when I had to do an essay on it at Bible college. I ended up getting on the right tangle. But there is that sense that within each of us, we can follow the ways of Christ or we can live according to the ways of the world. And that is what happened when Adam and Eve were exiled from the garden. No longer were they in communion with God but they were in communion and community with others. And by that very action, by that very banishment from the garden, they ended up being open to the ways not of God. They ended up allowing the world around them to influence them and their thinking. And as we continue through our Bible, we realize that so often... The choices that people made, and we continue to make, are not always the choices that God would have us do. Because we're not always living the lifestyle God would want us to. Before I look at the passage in more depth as to why Abel's offering was acceptable to God and why Cain's offering seemingly not, I want us to look right back at the beginning of the passage that we've read, when we realize that Cain was a farmer and Abel was a shepherd. I realize we may look at this as time goes on in the coming weeks and months as we look at the whole subject of the Bible, but it was just a reminder that as we look back over time, farming and shepherding basically two of the oldest occupations in time. But the social status of the shepherd is nowhere now or even in history as once it was. Here in chapter 4, we had a farmer and a shepherd, both of equal social status, both in a position of wealth and productivity. But by the time of Christ, the shepherds were at the bottom rung of the Palestinian ladder. In fact, they were viewed in the same way as tax collectors and dung sweepers. They were pretty low. They weren't even allowed to stay inside the city walls. They were so unwelcome. They had to stay outside the city walls. In fact, really the only reason that shepherds were even considered as being of any use was simply because they cared for the sheep that produced the lambs that were needed for the Jewish sacrifices, and particularly in Passover, when we know that the lambs were sacrificed. And yet, as we will discover in the coming weeks, as we look through Genesis and on beyond, from that very first moment of Cain and Abel developing these new roles in their lives, shepherding was a really noble occupation. If we think about the patriarchs of Abraham, of Moses, of Joseph, they were all wealthy. They were considered to have status. 
The wealthy sons of Isaac and Jacob, it tells us in Genesis 30, tended flocks. That was what they did. It was something that was, they were well known for and respected for. Jethro, the priest of Midian, he employed his daughters as shepherdesses because it was such a good occupation to have. So when did it all go horribly wrong? Well, if we zip through, through into Exodus, we know that the 12 tribes left Israel and went to Egypt. And they were given an area of the country, Goshen, in Egypt, when Joseph was there in that position of power, sorry, at the end of Genesis. But of course, when they moved to Egypt, in the same way that Cain and Abel and Adam and Eve were no longer in communion with God, but in community with other people, so the Israelites, when they entered into Egypt, encountered a lifestyle that was completely foreign to them. It took them out of what they knew and it perhaps opened their eyes to alternative ways of living. And the Egyptians were most definitely agriculturalists. They were farmers. They were people who grew things on behalf of other people. And they really didn't like shepherds. Because for them, the sheep and the goats were the cause of annihilation of their crops. And that attitude between the farmer and the shepherd really began to impact on the lives of the Israelites as they continued to remain in uh, Egypt. Genesis 46, Joseph said to his brothers and his father, when Pharaoh calls you in and asks, what is your occupation? You should answer, your servants have tended livestock from our boyhood on, just as our fathers did. And then you will be allowed to settle in the region of Goshen, for all shepherds are detestable to the Egyptians. This moment in Genesis chapter 4, where they started off in parity between Cain and Abel, sees a breakdown in a relationship between one and the other. All as a result of Cain murdering Abel. And that period of time has the Israelites continued to leave, live in Egypt, meant that the Israelites also began to view shepherds in a very different way. And as they lived in that wonderful fertile land of Goshen and they began to farm for themselves and grow the crops that they wanted for themselves, trying to contain themselves in that area, so the farmers amongst them began to look down in the same way as the Egyptians did on shepherds. And it became a menial vocation for the laboring class. If we skip forward a few chapters, as we'll hear in, in time to come, can you imagine then Samuel's shock when he's sent to go and appoint the new king? And he goes to Jesse and those wonderful sons of Jesse who are handsome and upright and wonderful, and yet he's told he has to anoint David, the shepherd boy. Didn't quite get his head around that. Well, forward through to the gospel account. As we've remembered at Christmas, who got the divine invitation? Who were on the mailing list from God? Not the religious leaders and the priests of the time, but no. The angels were sent to the shepherds to be told the message. It's a boy and he's the Messiah. God didn't look down 
on the shepherds. Christ moved amongst the lowly, as we can read again and again and again. And this attitude of one against the other, attitude that perhaps underlies some of our behaviours today, is as a result of where we too are influenced, not by communion with God, but by the attitudes of society around. And is that really fair? And is that really how God would want us to be? Of course, many people have referred to those who are in positions of responsibility, such as ministers and pastors, as shepherds who care for their flock. Jesus himself referred to himself as the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. And Christ in Hebrews is referred to as the great shepherd or in 1 Peter as the chief shepherd. And if I was to ask you which was your favourite psalm, many of you would come up with Psalm 23, that lovely message, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The way we look at others, the way we look at those that others may look down on, needs to be fueled by the motivation that comes from God and not perhaps from the world around. And we know that God loves everyone. We know that God welcomes everyone. We know that God has a care for everyone. And he is indeed a shepherd who cares for us. So back to the story in verses 3 to 5. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. And the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. Oh, how many of us have heard sermons preached on this? How many of us have read commentaries about what exactly was the reason that God looked with favor on Abel's offering, but not on Cain's? Was it that Abel brought the best to God because it was the firstborn of his flock? He was so delighted he'd finally got a newborn lamb that he sacrificed it to God. Whereas Cain maybe just grabbed some some of his crop that he had and he went and sacrificed that he didn't give the best but maybe some he had to spare we don't know maybe it was that Abel who'd maybe listened to his parents talking about how things used to be when they were in the garden and he'd grown up listening to them talking about how they used to commune with God and now they're out in the world around them and things weren't ever the same and Abel because he was the kind of child he was a sensitive child perhaps was more aware of the difference and he felt somehow that it was sad And he wanted to make it up to God by giving him the first fruits of his his flock, the, the newborn lamb. Whereas Cain was just getting on with living. There's no point looking back. Let's get on and live and this is how it is and I'm just going to get on. And he just brought what he had to hand. We don't know. Maybe, maybe it was that by Abel sacrificing the firstborn, some of the firstborn of his, of his lambs to God, he was really saying, 
this is my heart. This is what I want to do for you, God. I'm so pleased with the way things have turned out. Very much reminding us as we look forward to the Christ coming as our sacrificial lamb, that this was why God looked in favor on Abel's gift, on Abel's sacrifice, rather than on Cain's. It was about the heart motivation that lay behind it. Maybe Abel's heart was simply one full of love for God. And Cain, perhaps more influenced by society, was just brought what he had. In fact, Hebrews 11 would suggest it was about the heart motivation in that sacrifice gift. By faith, Abel brought God a better offering than Cain did. By faith, he was commended as righteous when God spoke well of his offerings. By faith, Abel still speaks even though he is dead. But the answer is, we simply don't know. And in fact, what we're trying to do in the 21st century of Christ as have so many people before us try to do is to try and understand what these verses are saying in light of what Christ has done for us. If you like, we're looking back through the lens of Christ's sacrifice for us. And if we just look at the passage in the Old Testament we realize that perhaps there is no reason why. And that's also a theme that runs through the Bible. That sometimes life is good for some people and seems not to be for others. Let's face it, if we look around our world today, perhaps with people we know, sometimes people just seem to have that Midas touch, so to speak. Just whatever they do seems to go well, and then others we may know, it just seems to be disaster after disaster after disaster. Maybe it was as simple as that. Maybe it's simply that we're trying to contain God within our own understanding and God is so much bigger than how we can understand him. But the one thing we do know as we look at this passage and as we continue and we'll continue to find out in the weeks to come, God has a care for all those he created. And certainly as we continue to read it, whether this is a, the earliest example of the sacrificial lamb as we look towards Christ later on, the evidence is that God loves all. And whatever he did, he did it out of love and continues to do so out of love. And the Bible is so full of so many examples of when things go, seem to go right and other times things seem to go wrong with no apparent reason for that. Think about the Psalms for a moment. If we think about the Psalms, we can read one of the Psalmists talking about, Lord, protect me. Get me away from my enemies. Be what I need you to be. Don't forsake me, God. And in the next moment, almost, in another Psalm, he's there talking about the Lord being his shepherd. He's there talking about the way that God has sustained him or been with him or provided for him or protected him. Sometimes we simply don't know the answer. 
I'm sure if he'd been the labourer that we can read about in the Gospels, who'd laboured all day and was given the same amount of money as the labourers who'd only turned up and done an hour's work, they didn't think life was fair, did they? And how often do we say that too? It's not fair. Life isn't always fair. And sometimes we don't know the reason why. And sometimes we question God as to why. Whereas actually, as it says in Proverbs 3, we need to just trust him. Trust in the Lord with all of our hearts and lean not on our own understanding. But in all our ways submit to him and he will make our paths straight. Sometimes in the midst of disaster, in the midst of things not seeming to go the way we want, in the way that some people seem to get on better than others. We don't know the reason why, but we're just called to trust. Trust in a God who had the whole world in his hands from the beginning and he will have until the end. And yes, we may shout and scream, as I will be talking about in a minute, but it's about can we still trust God in the midst of that. Because what we see as we continue through this passage is that yes, the Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry and his face was downcast. What really takes us back to where I was talking earlier about that battle that theologians have done over time as to why good and evil has a place. Many theologians would term what Cain's response was of anger, of falling within the seven deadly sins. And Richard Rohr, that American Catholic priest, would also add deceit and fear to those seven deadly sins of lust and gluttony and sloth and pride, and greed, and wrath, and envy. Because the number nine so nicely can be combated by the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit. Those of love, and joy, and peace, and patience, and kindness, and gentle, generosity, and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. And that's nice and neat, isn't it? But the answer, again, is we simply don't know but the consequences of how Cain used his anger is a thing that drove him to murder. God said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. There's that sense there, as God is liaising and talking to Cain, that actually, I'm giving you a second chance. I'm giving you the opportunity to try again. Maybe whatever gift he brought to, as a sacrifice to God just wasn't the best. And God is saying to Cain, go, go and sort yourself out. Come and come back to me, and I'll be here waiting for you. But of course we know, 
that's not what Cain did. In fact, he just was angry. And that sense of anger, that rejection of what happened, the envy and the jealousy that he felt that God was telling him was crouching at his door of his heart is the thing that he opened his heart to. And he felt that perhaps it wasn't fair and he was going to do something about it. He had the opportunity to do as God had invited him, to go and do what was right. But actually, no. The anger he felt against the way that God had treated him turned him away from God, turned him against his brother, and the consequence is the murder that we see here in these verses in chapter 8. And how many times do we say to God, it's not fair. Why have you allowed this to happen? Why aren't you listening to me, God? God, don't you understand? In the previous weeks, when we've looked at the story of what happened with Adam and Eve, we know that they blamed one another, but the sin that they had when they took that fruit and they ate from it was a sin against what God had quite clearly told them not to do. They sinned against God. But for Cain here in this passage, he sinned not only against God when he turned away from that opportunity that he had, but he also sinned against his brother and the consequences are for humanity still in existence today. And Cain says to God, with the punishment that he's given, my punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land and I will be hidden from your presence. Gosh, for Cain to acknowledge your punishment is more terrible than I can bear. I will be hidden from your presence. What a horrible and terrible response. A realization that no more was he communing with God. The moment had gone. He'd allowed that anger, that envy, that jealousy to enter his heart and he was in a completely different place. And when we rail against God, I'm not saying it's not okay to kind of ask God those questions. But what I'm saying is, yes, we can voice them. But we continue to need to trust him. We continue to need to not let that anger enter into our hearts and take us away. Because when anger and pride and jealousy and all those other negative emotions come in and take a place in our hearts, they can just get bigger and bigger and bigger. And the wall between us and God gets higher and higher and higher. Until eventually we cut ourselves off and we are the ones who are the losers. It's our relationship with God. Like it was with Cain, who was going to be hidden from God in the future. 
if we allow that sin to come in, we end up following the path of the world around us, of society around us, of the choices that bring harm to others rather than good, then we are walking away from God and not towards him. And eventually all our relationships, like that of Cain to Abel, will end up being embittered and may end up being severed. We need, yes, sometimes to question God and say, why? But never allow that question to become so deep within us that we're not able to also follow it with the verses or the words. But I'm continuing to trust you, even though I don't understand. I'm going to thank you that even in the midst of my despair or my anger or whatever I'm facing, I know that you are with me. In the way that chapter 4 started with hope, as two new humans were brought into the world with the births of Cain and Abel, so there can always be hope when we have our hands in God and we haven't turned away from him. And chapter 4 may have started with that sense of new life, but it actually finishes with new life too because in verse 25 it says Adam made love to his wife again and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth saying God has granted me another child in place of Abel since Cain killed him and Seth also had a son and he named him Enosh and at that time people began to call on the name of the Lord even after this terrible murder there was still hope with the arrival of yet another child, with the arrival of Seth and his descendants and people then calling on the name of the Lord, people turning back to God. And that's where I want to finish with us tonight is I want us perhaps just to pause and to think, where am I in my relationship with God? Am I following Christ and his paths or have I moved too far this way and I've become influenced more and more by the society around us, just like the Israelites did when they'd entered into Egypt and began to view the people who were the shepherds in a way that the Egyptians did? Are we allowing the influence of society to make more of a difference on our lives so that the evil, so to speak, the darkness, so to speak, the sin, so to speak, is getting bigger and the light of God's love in our lives is becoming much poorer, much dimmer, much less visible. What about our behaviours and our attitudes? Are they godly? Are they Christ-like? Or are they perhaps more like these that we see here in this passage, where greed and jealousy and envy and bitterness have a place? Because what I want us to do before we leave tonight is to leave this place knowing that our relationship with God is one where we are in union with him and not as it was with Cain, one where we're hidden from his presence. And so I'm going to suggest that just for a moment we pause and we just allow God to speak to us before I lead us in a prayer where perhaps we do say amen when we recognize that we do need to say sorry. And so I invite you just to sit and be quiet for a moment 
as we think about what God may be saying to us. so, most merciful God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, we do acknowledge that perhaps we haven't always lived with your light shining in the choices that we make. And rather we confess that we have sinned. And we are sorry when we haven't loved our neighbour as ourselves. When we have been selfish and judgmental and unkind. Then perhaps we may have been stubborn or argued with others or refused to hear your voice and respond to it when we have not loved you with our whole heart. When the choices that we have made have had negative consequences for others and even for ourselves, which is impacted on our relationship with you. And so, Lord, in your mercy, forgive us. Help us, Lord, to amend what we do, how we behave, and even simply sometimes in the way that we talk. Help us to become the people you want us to be, that even when things are difficult and we do ask that question, why God? You enable us to continue to trust you, even in the pain and the hurts and the despair. Help us to always remember that hope is there waiting for us to put our hand out and to trust you and to thank you and to know that you never ever leave us or forsake us as we turn ourselves back again to you, recognizing that in all things, even in those things which are difficult, you have not left us alone. We are not hidden from your presence, but you are there in our midst. And so we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to live justly and love mercy and to walk humbly with you, our God, because we want to be people who shine for you, not people who live in bitterness. We want to be people who bring hope to others, people who trust even at times of difficulty, and that we can share that love and that hope that we have with those around who may find it harder or do not even know you in their lives. And so we ask this, through your love, through mercy, through your faithfulness, that you will love us and help us day by day. For we ask this in your name. Amen. And our last song reminds us of the words, in a sense we can pick up from here, which is, let us build a house where love can dwell. Because if God's dwelling in our lives with love, that's going to be far, far greater than living in a world and living a life where hate and bitterness will take us away from the Lord who came to this earth as our sacrifice.